From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Two stories today about drugs that have gone from being taboo to being treatments. First, many doctors and nurses found they just weren't equipped to answer patients' questions about cannabis. So medical schools are trying to fill the information vacuum. Also, MDMA, a.k.a. ecstasy, as a treatment for PTSD. It's administered by a professional, and psychotherapy is a must. The FDA is on board, and the trials are promising. Then, a gripping new memoir by This American Life editor Susan Burton. She spent her high school years in Boulder, which is where her eating disorders began to take hold. Periods of intense food restriction, along with bouts of binge eating. Her book is called Empty. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Many healthcare workers feel unprepared to answer patients' questions about cannabis. It's why the University of Colorado's pharmacy school created an introductory course for healthcare providers and has just started a graduate program. It'll be the first in the state and one of the first in the country. Heather Smith is a pharmacologist at Craig Hospital in Englewood. She took this course, and David Kroll is a professor of pharmacology at CU. Welcome to both. Great to be here, Ryan. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So, Heather, what prompted you to take this course? Oh, my goodness. I think, so I've been in practice for about 13 years. And I think over the over that time, there's been an increased need. A lot more patients are talking about their use Um, And they have a lot of questions. You know, we did a study in 2018 that Craig Hospital published that showed 70% of people living in Colorado with spinal cord, brain injury, used um, cannabis prior to their injury and 48% um, used after their injury. And so I think that just speaks to the volumes of um, the need for this information. Well, that's interesting because it sounds like what you were... Uh, hearing from patients is that they were already using cannabis and they wanted to know what the effects of that might be, what the potential benefits were. Did you also hear from patients who hadn't used the drug and wanted some guidance in that respect? Absolutely. Yeah. And you felt ill-prepared to answer those questions? Um, I know I was I was prepared, but it was a one-liner. Okay. What was the one-liner? Um, this is bad for with your injury and healing. Um, it's it's going to reverse some of the rehab that you've done, and we absolutely don't recommend it in any situation. But at some point, you started to question that one-liner, I guess. Um, it's just, you know, I still feel that there's a lot of safety issues um, around cannabis, but there's a lot more to the conversation that needs to be had. And so, yeah. Do you feel then that you have a deeper sense of cannabis's potential benefits? I mean, what, what do you say now, you know, contrast the before and after for me? So now there's, we learned a lot of the clinical interview process, how to approach a patient, how to ask the questions to understand what they're using, how they're using it, what they're using it for, the benefits they're getting, um, and, and some of the adverse events they may be experiencing that they don't even realize may be coming from that, those products. Um, 
So this it, is not, I just want to be clear, this is not just about singing the praises of cannabis. It is, no. it, yeah, it's having a more sophisticated sense of their use and how that might be beneficial and how it actually might not be. Correct. Do you feel like you have a better bond now with patients as a result of it? <laughs> that's, yes. So that's one of the major things uh, that I got out of this course that was unexpected. So it it is uh, deepened the relationships with my patients. Um, it's uh, increased the trust, I think, that we have together. I've had patients, um, more than one, who just stop me mid-interview and they say, I've never had a clinician ask me these questions. Um, I'm so glad that I feel like I can talk to you about this. Um, and that that right there is is the bread and butter of everything I do every day. So Whereas before they might have felt shut down or that they couldn't confide in you maybe. Do you think that's true? I think that's a possibility. A possibility? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Heather, I, I could keep asking you questions, but I feel like we should bring Dave Kroll into the conversation who helped start uh, this cannabis education at CU for doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals. And why do you think this kind of education is so important at this moment, David? Well, I think it's absolutely important because just of the scope of cannabis use amongst our community. Uh, both for recreational purposes as well as for medical purposes. And I think the important issue here, particularly in Colorado with retail uh, cannabis being available, is that now that there's no longer a strict requirement for medical qualifications yeah. uh, with, with a healthcare provider, a lot of the information that patients are getting is coming from people who may not have a complete grasp on the entire medication profile and health conditions that, that patients have. So we felt that we needed to put something together to empower our healthcare community, uh, pharmacists, doctors, nurses, uh, PAs, uh, pretty much everybody who would be willing to take the course so that we could have these conversations with patients that, that Heather's describing. So give me an example of a lesson that you impart to a healthcare provider where you see the light bulbs kind of go off. Yeah, I think the I, I think the I, I do a lot of the basic pharmacology sort of what is in cannabis, yeah. uh, THC and CBD, and I think that people are amazed. First of all, that we have um, we have receptors in our body that recognize these plant chemicals, and that can have beneficial therapeutic effects. This is not just some pie in the sky, hopeful, wishful advocacy thinking. Um, Cannabidiol is a prescription drug product for childhood epilepsy syndromes and probably will have expanded indications. It's really fascinating for, for people to feel validated that their maybe possibly preconceived notions might be wrong, that cannabis is just some, you know, uh, some sort of plant to, you know, to chill out and get stoned. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, No, I mean, it is, it is not entirely that. It is, uh, it is a plant medicine. And, and I've been studying plant medicines my, my whole career, uh, looking at drugs from nature for cancer. So this is really just, for me, an intellectual extension of what we'd already been teaching in pharmacy schools. And, and in fact, pharmacy schools were the source of plant medicines for you know, literally hundreds of years. You know, what's fascinating here, of course, is there's a, a gap between... Um, what we would like to know about the medical benefits of cannabis and what we know. And that's because for so long, research has been suppressed 
or slowed. Um, how, how do you deal with that gap in a course like this? The, yeah. All that you don't know. Yeah, all, all that we don't know. I think, I think the first thing that becomes a, a bit overwhelming to both patients and providers is that there is no one cannabis product. There are variations. Uh, you've got pure plant material. You've got extracts. You've got things that are enriched. You've got drinks. Drinks. You've got, yeah, <laughs> energy drinks. With, you've got pet treats with CBD in them. Um, and so, so getting through that and trying to help providers go through the clinical information as to what's been tested and what kind of products are appropriate for different indications becomes extremely important. So they do walk away with some concrete information about conditions that would benefit from cannabis. Do I hear that? Yeah, we're a solid evidence-based program. We, we cite the clinical literature and the formulations of cannabis that have been used in, in standardized clinical trials. So Heather, I, I'm interested in then what sorts of conditions you have been open to talking about cannabis for with patients at Craig Hospital, which, you know, as you've hinted with us, specializes in people who've had uh, brain, injury, brain injuries, spinal cord, spinal cord injuries, exactly. Um, so we, we don't recommend cannabis, medical cannabis on campus. Okay. Um, and it's not something that would be prescribed per se, recommended. Um, but if that uh, if this is introduced to us by the patient or we learn through our interview that it's something that they're interested in, I think the tools that, that I have gained through this course are um, sorting out a safe way um, to use, um, mitigating risks, um, and teaching our, our patients to navigating that wide world of variability um, and impurities um, that that exist. I think you've out really community. you've really hinted at what some of the pitfalls here can be. So inconsistency in the products, the fact that you know one edible might make you react one way, and another, you know, uh, of the same bite might have a different effect. And and Ryan, yeah, that's that one edible today, um, you know, that, that has the same name might be different from that edible next month by the same name. It's a, it, it's, it's a wild world out there. A wild world. Um, what, would, you, would you say then, David, that the goal here is to educate purely? Is it to advocate to some extent? I mean, do you, do you think that marijuana should play a greater role in medicine? Well, I, I think ask you plainly. Yeah, our, our advocacy role is for the patient, and the science leads us to wherever that is. And so that's why we do cover, you know, why some high THC products might be uh, detrimental in people, say, with PTSD, because they can in increase paranoid delusions and, and unsettled, anxious behaviors. Um, but no, certainly, uh, the, the diversity of where our own cannabinoids work in our body tells me that there are great untapped opportunities uh, for human healing uh, with the appropriate cannabinoid product. Is this also about making smarter consumers out of your patients, cannabis consumers? Absolutely. You know, we've been doing this at CU School of Pharmacy for over 30 years, talking about herbal medicines and dietary supplements and how we can help consumers make smarter decisions about product quality and, and truth in advertising. Yeah, I mean, you walk... Uh, you know, a supplement aisle. Right. And uh, lots of claims are being made. That's correct. That's correct. And, and, and that's kind of where, where cannabis is right now. We, we both have, you know, 
problems with how the products are being marketed, uh, as well as, as Heather pointed out, you know, discrepancies in product quality and reproducibility. And I think adding to adding some sort of rigor to that, whether it's at the state level or federal level, ultimately is going to be most important in patient care. Last question, David Kroll. Do you think that in medical circles, there's actually less education about cannabis because it because it has been seen as so off limits for so long. I mean, I wonder sometimes if the patients are better informed than the providers. So, sometimes they they are, and and I think that's where we provide the service to the healthcare providers. Thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate you both. Thank you. Thank you. You heard from David Kroll, professor of pharmacology at the School of pharmacology at CU, who helped design this program around cannabis education. Heather Smith is a pharmacologist at Craig Hospital in Englewood who took the course. MDMA is a drug often associated with club culture. It's commonly known as ecstasy or molly, but it was developed in 1912 by a German pharmaceutical company to enhance psychotherapy. Now, a growing body of evidence suggests MDMA may be beneficial in treating some psychological conditions. In 2017, the FDA granted breakthrough therapy designation for its use with psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. Marcella Odolora is a psychotherapist and principal investigator of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trials in Boulder. And Marcella, welcome to our program. Thank you. What is a therapy session that involves MDMA look and feel like? This is a guided experience. Yes. I mean, the first thing I want to say is that MDMA is sometimes in molly and ecstasy, but not always. Mm. So it's actually very, you know, very different. It's a very, it can be very different. Sometimes ecstasy doesn't even contain MDMA. So we use MDMA um, in its purest form. And in terms of a session, uh, we have preparatory sessions and integrative sessions. So our pro, um, in our study, there's about 42 hours of therapy that we do. Right. And, and so some, of, some of that is with MDMA and some of it is not, in other words. That's right. So we do preparatory and integrative sessions. And then we have three sessions with um, MDMA. In our phase two study, we, had, um, we didn't have a uh, double-blind placebo like we do now. So in those three sessions, it's an eight-hour session, and there are two therapists that are with the participant, and we stay with them the whole time for eight hours, and then we have somebody stay with them um, through that night so that they're not alone, and then we come back the following morning. So in those eight hours, we, we have times where they go inside, and they're quiet, and they're seeing what's coming up for them, and there's times when we interact with them and we talk, and there's a lot of uh, engagement. Um, music plays a big part, so we play music the whole time that during those eight hours. So it, it's a commitment for sure for both therapists and patients. And and what is the MDMA actually achieving for someone with PTSD? What is it that it's helping bring up? memories they otherwise wouldn't be able to access or, or what? Yes. So MDMA deactivates part of the amygdala, which it controls fear. So there's a sense of less fear, but still being able to be connected to emotion. So um, 
when there's less fear, there's a more uh, of a possibility of exploring aspects that uh, of tra- traumatic experiences that maybe the participant has not been able to do due to fear that the body kind of stops them because of it. So and, f- um, fear acts as a wall, in other words. Yes. Huh. Yes. Fear is sort of like the stop, like, okay, I can't go further. And generally it happens either that they... Um, you know that the body overactivates and and you're in hyperarousal or or that you're numb and so you can no longer work and so the the space to work is being able to to have that fear but being able to work with it and still um, access other parts and so it lends itself very well to work with PTSD because of that while obviously being mindful of patient privacy, can you give us a sense of a, of a breakthrough moment in a therapy session? Um, sure. I think, uh, well, one of the principle, the principles that we have, one of, that we teach about this work too, is that there's an inherent drive of the human spirit to heal. And we trust that, that healing intelligence. And so, when people are able to do that, to really understand that kind of like their critical ego steps back and they observe themselves, they're able to um, get to this place. As an example would be um, when someone realized that she was no longer looking to change her past, like to change what happened, um, that she had spent a lot of time in her life trying to figure out and change it that if she kind of repeated it and repeated it she would be able to change what happened and that she began to trust that her experience was a place where she genuinely belonged that Mm. this was really her that she could heal from that place so it was no longer trying to change the past gosh so it was almost like a radical acceptance uh which i imagine leads to all sorts of work around moving on, uh, uh, moving to a new space then, as opposed to just regretting the old. Is it possible that a patient has a bad trip, uh, for lack of a better phrase, during a session like this? Yeah. (laughs) So one of the things that is commonly known among um, psychedelic psychotherapists in this work is that there is no such thing as a bad trip. Um, that is a challenging, difficult trip, but no such thing as a bad trip. And I, you know, I do think that there's uh, an exception to that. And to me, a bad trip is when you, you're not in a location where you can feel safe and where you have people that can actually hold and contain what is going for, what is happening for you and that they can support it. I think that's a bad trip. So for us, we, we don't have that because we have two therapists who are trained, who can really hold the experience, who can be there the whole time and uh, support the, the participant. So can there be like really challenging, difficult times? Absolutely. And it's just being able to be with them and to trust them and to know that they're coming up for healing. And so being able to have that support, then the participant is able to, to move through them, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a cure, but it's a way to 
to begin to experience it in a different way and and that it's not stuck. It, it is moving towards healing. Are there other conditions besides severe trauma that you think MDMA could work for? Yes, I do. And we, we, we have done some studies for anxiety due to um, life-threatening illness and also anxiety in, um, for, in autism. But autism. Um, I think, yes, but I, it, it, I think it will. And we just need to do more studies. And right now we're focusing mostly on PTSD. And we're hoping that, um, you know, that we can use MDMA as a medication for PTSD and then do more research. And yes, absolutely. I think it can help other conditions. In the 60s and 70s, before MDMA was criminalized, it was used a lot um, for, de- uh, for depression and for couples therapy and oh, wow. with great success. So I, I think it can be definitely used for a very various conditions. Is it potentially habit forming? Just curious. No, I I don't. I mean, is is there a a risk of a de, um, uh, you know like a dependence? Yes, I think all drugs have that, but it's it's uh, pretty minor. And like the and what we have found in research is that that has not been the case. Okay, that it hasn't it, it hasn't so. What kinds of traumas are we talking about? Just give us a sense for what your patients have faced. So some of it is with veterans that have been in war, and um, and then um, sometimes what we call complex PTSD, so traumas that have gone on for a period of time, so childhood traumas that continued a lot of um, sexual abuse, uh, neglect. Um, sometimes there is natural disasters, you know, somebody that went through an experience with a natural disaster. Huh. But most of the time it has been um, veterans and it has been um, abuse, yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Marcella. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. Boulder psychotherapist Marcella Odolora is a principal investigator of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trials, MAPS, or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is sponsoring 14 trials around the world. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a new memoir by This American Life editor Susan Burton. She grew up in Boulder and writes about her complicated relationship with food and family. The new memoir is called Empty. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. At nine years old, Susan Burton had her first experience with dieting. 
At the end of dinner, she writes, I felt such pleasure, the first spark of something I would come to know intimately later, the power of renunciation or waiting out a meal, of rising from a table still empty. And Empty is the title of Burton's new memoir, much of it set in Boulder, where she went to high school. It's also where her anorexia and binge eating disorder took hold. Susan Burton joins us from New York, where she's an editor for This American Life. And Susan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I'd like to start with the opening scene of your book. It's the summer before you start college, and there's a pint of ice cream, a borrowed spoon, and a dumpster. Tell me about this ritual. Sure. So that scene takes place uh, at the very beginning of my freshman year at Yale. It was the fall of 1991. And I'd started binge eating um, as a high school student in Boulder at Fairview High. And I had this fantasy that when I went to college, when I was in a different environment, um, my eating disorder was just going to go away. Mm. And so I'd spent, you know, kind of the first few days at Yale really trying hard not to do it, not to do it. But one morning I just broke and I went across the street to a little, you know, like 24 hour food place bought a pint of ice cream, didn't know where I could go to eat it, walked down a sidewalk, found an empty parking lot with a dumpster, hid behind the dumpster, and just drove the spoon into the ice cream. The spoon was one I'd taken from our room. Uh, it belonged to one of my roommates who, you know, in the way you do, you bring stuff from home, microwave, silverware and stuff mm. to, to put in your dorm room. And uh and when I finished the ice cream, I felt, as I always did after a binge, um, disgusted with myself and also ashamed in this case because the ice cream was so frozen that I, I'd actually bent the spoon um, driving, you know, driving into the pint. And I ended up throwing the spoon and the empty pint away. I felt like I desecrated the spoon, like I, you know, damaged this item, my roommates. And then I walked down the street just um, so sad that, uh, you know, that this problem that I'd dreamed would go away clearly was not going to go away. And in fact, wound up defining uh, much of my experience in college. Yeah. I mean, you write that on every birthday from the age of 17 to 41, you made a resolution to fix your eating. Help us understand what that meant to you to fix your eating. Sure. I, and that's a really good question because the thing that happened for me, the reason I stopped making it uh, after that 41st birthday was that fix my eating, it meant it didn't mean get healthy. It didn't mean get help. It didn't mean develop a healthy relationship with food. To me, it meant eat perfectly. And, you know, eating perfectly meant in a way that would make me feel in control of both my emotions and my body. And... When the, you know, the last birthday on which I made that resolution, I stopped making it because I was unsettled by it. I realized that I was a woman in my 40s still thinking her teenage thoughts. You know, I was really stuck in these thought patterns and stuck in my disordered eating. And that was really the moment when I felt ready to do something about it. Yeah, I can understand that the phrase fix your eating is so on or off, black or white, it leaves no room for grace. 
Um, and it, it sounds like you needed to make space for Grace in a way around eating. I did. I did. Yes, I definitely needed to make space for self-compassion. And I also needed to bring somebody in. You know, I think for me, like for a lot of people with eating disorders, you're always telling yourself that this is something you can fix on your own. And that's what I told myself for decades. But it wasn't until I reached out for help, wasn't until I went for therapy uh, and brought somebody else in uh, that I was really able to make change. So you have indeed struggled with both anorexia and binge eating disorder, although you prefer the term compulsive eating. And I was struck by this observation in your book. Not eating was the same as binge eating. Both made food the primary determinant of feeling. Expound on that for me, how restriction shares a lot with compulsive eating, overeating. Yes, and I'm really glad you drew attention to that because eating disorders, you know, first of all, most of us who have eating disorders have experience with more than one of them. And and the function of the eating disorder is really to cope with a man cope with emotional pain, to manage unbearable feeling. So when when I wasn't eating, um, you know, it was a numbing. I didn't have to feel anything but hunger. Uh, I had this illusion of self-mastery and control. When I was binging, um, I didn't have to, you know, binging was a way to dissociate, uh, to, as long as I was eating, I didn't have to think, I didn't have to deal with any loss or pain Mm. or, you know, it was high school. I didn't have to deal with any paper. I didn't want to go upstairs and write. Um, and then as soon as it was over, I always felt a lot of self-loathing, but again, that was a really familiar feeling. It was a really familiar cycle. Uh, So it both eating and not eating uh, prevented me from dealing with emotions that were hard to sit with, with, with things that I didn't have, didn't want to face. So Susan Burton, the experience that I had reading this book during the pandemic, when many of us are spending a lot more time at home than we used to, is that I kept thinking about how often I have comforted myself with what's in my pantry. And and I, I'm loath to bring this up because I don't want to equate stress eating with serious eating disorders. But I, I do think that it makes people quite sensitive and maybe even receptive to the sorts of themes that you're talking about. I mean, I see all over social media people complaining about their relationship with food right now. Will will you speak to that for us? Sure. Well, well, first of all, food is comforting, right? It is comforting. It is nourishing. And and that's that's one of the things we do as humans is is take pleasure in it and soothe ourselves with it. for somebody who has an eating disorder, uh, the relationship with food is is dysregulated. It's a problem. So when I was binging, you know, I wasn't uh, opening my freezer and pulling out a pint of Ben and Jerry's Heath Bar Crunch uh, to I wasn't taking pleasure in it. And I also wasn't it wasn't like a once in a while thing I did because 
I was sad about something. Mm. It was compulsive. I experienced it as an addictive disorder. It was something, you know, I couldn't stop. Uh, after a binge each evening, I'd climb the stairs, you know, my heart racing, resolving, you know, that was it. I wasn't going to do it again. Today was the last time, you know, tomorrow was a new day all that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and I would wake up and within hours I would be doing it again. And, and that's, you know, I think that's really the difference. Oh. You moved to Boulder after your parents divorced. So you, your mom and your sister came West, I think from Michigan. And, um, I'm going to have you read a passage on page 40 that both celebrates your new life in Boulder and foreshadows some of the hardships ahead. And I'll just say that music and radio are a big presence in this book. Yes, and uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm I'm thrilled that you're asking me to to read this passage. So this, uh, yeah, I'm I'm 13 years old in this passage. Okay. When the song finished, the DJ came on. This is 97.3 KBCO. The radio station started with K instead of W. I had moved out of W into K. W was the real system, and K was the secondary one for people who lived far away. Then, though it had been hot and bright, my room darkened. I stood and went to the window. Clouds raced through the sky like a special effect. I didn't know then that it would happen every summer day, a brief storm rolling in from the mountains. On the deck of the house in back of us, two girls sat on lounge chairs. As drops began to fall, one screeched and put a magazine over her head. They ran inside through sliding glass doors. I stayed at the window, watching, until I felt my mother in the doorway and turned around. I can't see her there in, that do in the doorway on that first day without flashing ahead to her in that same spot three years later. Me sitting on my bed, slinging cruel words, a talent of mine by then. She, drunk slamming the door so hard that the frame came out of the wall. Our later selves would have been impossible for us to predict. Her drinking, my anger, and the way I ate. How much do you think your eating was related to your mother's drinking? Well, you know, uh, the first thing I want to say is that my mother is sober now, which is which is something very important for me to say, not only so that, that listeners know she's sober, but also because that uh, was just one of the most inspiring experiences of my life to see her transform that way. Mm. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, um, so as an adult, I now see... Uh, like I said, my binging as an addictive disorder. And, you know, I see my mother turning to one substance, alcohol, and me turning to another, food. At the time, I don't, I didn't consciously make that connection. But what I was conscious of was that we were both hiding. So, for example, I would be upstairs in my room uh, doing homework, and my mother would be downstairs in the kitchen. And I would hear her down there, and I would be in my room just hating her, not because she was down there drinking, which she was, but because she was in the kitchen and I needed the kitchen in order to binge. Mm. And, you know, I would wait, I would hear her feet on the stairs. She would go into her bedroom. She would shut the door. I would open my door. I would go down the stairs, go back to that same kitchen, turn on the light, open the freezer and start to binge. And I was very conscious in those moments that we both 
were hiding out in the kitchen uh, doing these things that we didn't want anybody else to see. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new memoir, Empty, by Susan Burton. She's an editor at This American Life, and much of it is set in Boulder, where she went to high school. And to some extent, this does feel like a bit of a love letter to Boulder. I know that it was the scene of many painful experiences, but you, you do seem to love the place. I do. And I'm I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that was one of the things, one of the real pleasures in writing this book was being able to return to Boulder. I love Boulder. I, I uh, you know, just even reading that passage just now and being able to say 97.3 KBCO on the radio, <laughs> like that is just a crazy thrill for me. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, I feel so lucky that, uh, that I went to high school there. Um, I have a, a deep, deep connection to to the place. It seems to me that a lot of pain in my own life um, comes from comparing myself to others. And you do a lot of this in the book. I mean, almost religiously comparing your body to those of other girls and women. And you were particularly preoccupied with their knee backs knee backs. Can you explain what knee backs are for me? <laughs> sure. So uh, it is It is a very funny metric, isn't it? Uh, when I was a little girl, uh, I was a swimmer. So, you know, there were lots of pools, lots of swim teams in my life. And from a very early age, I remember looking at the backs of other little girls' knees. Um, and I suppose, you know, in the way that another girl might look at the width of somebody's thighs or ankles, for whatever reason, knee backs uh, were were my thing, which which is is pretty nuts. I mean, I think your knee backs are pretty genetically determined. <laughs> there's there's you know, I've I've never seen a woman's magazine, you know, tip sheet or pointers on on how to <laughs> get you know thin knee backs. But 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 I say that in part because it was I, I, you know I don't know where it came from. Uh, our 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 preoccupations with bodies are so idiosyncratic and so strange. I totally identify with that. I've always compared the back of my hairline to the back of, of other men's hairlines. The back, uh-huh. like the how the hair is on my neck. And, the you know, these are somewhat immutable. But uh, you, you mentioned magazines just there because go, yeah. talk about an easy way to compare yourself to others. Seventeen magazine looms large in this book. The memoir, once again, is called Empty by Susan Burton. Um, years later, I, I think you went back to old issues of Seventeen, you know, from from when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. How how was the experience to see those teen magazines that had so shaped you as an adult? I mean, the primary experience of looking at them, I was so flooded with um, with nostalgia. They were so evocative of that time in my life. Um, so, so I remember, for instance, um, you know. Th- tanning oil was really big in the mid 80s. So by the time I'd returned to the magazines, you know, we were slathering ourselves with 60 SPF. Nobody was using tanning oil. Um, so so there were things like that. Um, you know, I as as a teenage, as a preteen girl and as an adult returning to those magazines, I wasn't 
as focused on the bodies of the girls in the magazine, which which might be surprising mm. given the subject of my memoir. But for me, seventeen, it represented it represented there was a personality type. I imbued the girls in that magazine with a certain kind of bubbly, easygoing, kind of popular girl personality that did not come naturally to me. That was not what I had. And that was what I craved. And so I imagined transforming into a girl who could occupy the pages of Seventeen, which had more to do with sort of emotional affect than it did with size. Um, but I do see that experience as really connected to my eating disorders because both things are about being kind of fundamentally dissatisfied with who one is, mm. feeling like one needs to be different. One needs to hide uh, kind of the the parts of oneself that, that one doesn't want anyone to see. You are very careful not to mention your weight at at various times in your life in this book. Why did you avoid using that number? So numbers of all kinds, weights, calorie counts, can be really triggering to people who are vulnerable to eating disorders, people who've experienced disordered eating in the past, people who are maybe on the precipice of it, um, in large part because of something you pointed to earlier, that habit of comparison. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, reading a number in a book and being like, okay, so if she weighed that and she's this tall and I'm this tall and I weigh that, oh my God, like I need to, you know, I need to change. I need to lose more weight. Or um, so it's, uh, it, it can be really provocative for somebody who's vulnerable to this stuff. What does sobriety, do you use that term, by the way, for yourself? I don't. I don't. I do say that I am um, working toward recovery, though. Um, and I don't say that I am recovered because I'm not. I'm still... Um, I'm still learning how to have an organic, uh, natural, comfortable relationship with food and my body. Um, I'm much closer to it than I was as an adolescent girl or even than I was five or 10 years ago. Uh, but I'm, I'm still working to, to be able to say that I'm fully recovered. Yeah, and I think the tricky part, of course, is that if you are sober from other substances, you know, alcohol, you 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 avoid it. You don't use it at all. Food doesn't allow you that. That's right. That's right. Uh, so when I, you know, the I was binging pretty compulsively uh, through much of college. And the way that I thought I would climb out of it was to do what I called quit food. That was the phrase I used in my head. Huh. And I swung back into anorexia. Um, you know, that was a perilous uh, solution that, uh, you know, I feel grateful that I avoided um, some of the most severe consequences of anorexia. But you can't quit food, right? But but for those of us with eating disorders, it's you know it's kind of a, the binging or anorexia, this kind of like all or nothing thing. That's that's very appealing because it can be so hard to regulate uh, your relationship with with food, the substance. But but that's the challenge, right? That's the the challenge of recovery is is learning to develop a relationship with food that that's more even. You write at one point, I transferred so much feeling to food. That's a thing I haven't kicked. Food remains electric for me. 
And I, I just want to point out, you, you mentioned anorexia, which, as you write in the book, has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. Um, we have about 30 seconds. Do you, do, do you feel lucky to have survived? Oh, I do. Yes. Um, and I feel very lucky that I had people in my life who were able to draw attention to the ways that I was harming myself um, and to help me get healthy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. This American Life editor, Susan Burton, has written Empty, a memoir. Much of it takes place in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News wants to help voters set the agenda in this election year. I'm News Director Rachel Estabrook, and we're shaping our coverage of the 2020 election with your help. What do you want candidates to address as they compete for your vote? And how has the pandemic changed or solidified your political opinions? Fill out a short survey online about what matters to you this election year. Find the survey at CPR.org slash Colorado 2020. The Museum of Contemporary Art Denver has created a surreal experience called Dreaming Denver. It sends you on a free outdoor audio tour of the city's unconscious. Denverites Maggie Donahue checked it out. I'm standing in an alley behind the Museum of Contemporary Art in downtown Denver with Sarah Bai, the MCA's programming director. Traffic and pedestrians pass by noisily as we huddle around Bai's phone. So we're outside of the, the Museum of Contemporary Art, and the first stop is here on the tour. So I'm going to dial it up. <laughs> here we go. You're inside the MCA building after it is closed, all alone in the dark, your footsteps bouncing off the tall ceilings. You step into the first gallery. Seemingly everyday items hang on the walls. The MCA is one of 30 different stops of Dreaming Denver, a tour created by the surrealist poet Matthias Folina. At each location, tourgoers dial a number on their phone to access a dream written by Svolina, like the one we just heard. You step into the next room and find your car in the center of the floor. This entire museum is devoted to you. Bai says it lets people experience art in a safe, socially distanced way during the pandemic. We knew that even if we are open, there will be a number of visitors who won't necessarily feel comfortable coming back to the museum and experiencing the art in the museum as they might have before. So we wanted to create an exhibition that takes place outside that is a little hidden from view when you experience it, but then when you do experience it, it allows you to see the city in a new way. Svolina says he initially planned Dreaming Denver to function like a history walking tour of the city, but a surreal version. Many of the stops are Denver landmarks like the Big Blue Bear and the Brown Palace. That sort of potential unconscious and the potential dream mind is one in which there are familiar elements that go wrong, but either joyfully wrong or assumptively wrong. So that when things happen, like the blue bear begins to walk around with you and your friends, there's no shock at it. Just like in a dream, whatever comes next is taken as what had to come next. 
So there's elements of nonsense and then elements of playing out. Some of the dreams are silly. Some of them are sad. Some are unsettling. Some are soothing. Some are funny and delightful. Dwayne The Rock Johnson makes an appearance in one. Smolina says that all of them are designed so that the sights and sounds and randomness of the city enhance his poems. As Felina and I talk, we hear sirens in the distance. In the, the dream version of this, the sirens would, rather than fading away in a Doppler effect, come over and wrap around us like ribbons, you know, wrapping us more and more until suddenly they've made us into a bib. And then <laughs> what would that bib do? That A bib requires eating, so there would be some kind of crab or lobster situation that would warrant the bib, or maybe we would be babies eating baby food. Esther Varney is a frequent patron of the MCA. She says the tour made her notice things about the city that she never had before. I felt really connected. I felt connected to the city. It made me feel like even though there was this this incredibly intimate moment, I was still part of this rhythm that was going on all around me. It gave me a chance to go out and experience wonder again, which has been a little short in supply of late. I asked Svelina about the idea of escaping into surrealism now, during COVID and the current racial justice movement and everything else going on, when the world suddenly feels surreal to so many people. I've made the not very funny joke a couple times that it's a really bad time to be a surrealist because the entire world decided to go surreal. But also, it always has been. You know, I think the kind of core thing about surrealism is that it's real. He says he hopes Dreaming Denver will help patrons find joy in their familiar surroundings. Yeah, my impossible goal would be that everybody in a city of nearly a million people are all finding the little dreams that pop up but are so often ignored in every spot of the city. Until we all wake up, I'm Maggie Donahue, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. As much as we like KBCO, this is CPR News.